0: Good to see you guys. Well, if you would join me in Romans chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning while you're turning. uh, By the way, if you're a guest with us and don't have a Bible, no worries. It's going to be up on the screen for you. Uh, And if you'd like to have one on our way out the door, just ask somebody with a lanyard and they'll get you one. That will be our gift to you, uh, along with any other thing you might need today. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, a number of you apparently are coming back tonight along with whoever's going to be at the 11 o'clock service. It's uh, kind of maxed out at this point, and I'm thankful to hear that, not only of your interest, but just knowing that this is a meeting about really the future, uh, the future of this body and, and what I've learned over the last two months and how that relates to that future. And so it's going to be, as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, a conversation. Uh, but I do need a considerable amount of time to talk about what I've learned. So No, um, there's not going to be 2,000 pictures, I promise. You're not going to get all the details. I have really kind of pared this thing down for you. Uh, But I do need some time to present. We want some time for questions. And I know that there are some of you uh, in our, I I don't know what to call you anymore. Senior citizens doesn't work. Older adults doesn't work. Yeah, I can't win. But you know who you are, right? Whoever you are and uh and and understandably like you you want to get home before dark and the sun's going down sooner than it used to and i want to respect that and also have you not feel like you have to leave and miss something so here's what i'm going to ask of all of you it starts at four o'clock do the best you can to be here on time i know your children if they're small are going to do everything they can to keep that from happening i understand I've been there, but do the best you can, and that way, as close to 4.30 as possible, uh, I'll start talking about this. Something else is that beginning tomorrow, for those of you that would like to join us, uh, we're going to begin two weeks of prayer and fasting. Uh, You have a guide out in the foyer. Uh, You can fast the whole time if you'd like, or if you're like me and you kind of need a little extra energy, you can fast one meal a day. Maybe it's not food. Maybe it's electronics. Maybe it's tobacco maybe it's alcohol maybe it's something else uh that you want to give up over the next two weeks just as a symbolic gesture to the lord that i need you and your presence and your word more than i need whatever this thing is that i'm giving up and offer that to him and we do this seasonally as a church uh just in 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 moments of of just where i think it's just time to have focused prayer for each other and for our collective mission. I can't think of a better time to do that than when we're talking about our future here while simultaneously having a team of some of our best serving overseas, amen? And so that starts tomorrow. It will conclude at our unity service on October 29th. So we've got a lot of things going down this fall, a lot of exciting stuff. Hope that you will be along with us. We're in this series called Different, asking the question, what kind of disciples do we want to make as we look to our future? And what kind of difference do they need to make in the world? Those are the two primary questions. And we spent the last two weeks learning what it looks like from the New Testament to live a life that is on the one hand questionable, that will raise questions in other people's lives and cause them to look at you and go who are you why do you live that way this looks so different what exactly do you believe who do you believe in that would cause you to react in this way or to behave in that way last week we looked at what it looked like to be hospitable that Christian people followers of Jesus live hospitable lives which means everyone is welcome at your table everyone feels comfortable in your presence and all of that has a point that we're going to be talking about today Every bit of that has to be Christ-centered. A number of years ago, I was doing a consult at a church in Delaware. And they were doing kind of a remake. It was a church that had been in decline for a number of years. They were looking to breathe new life into that congregation and so they were trying to encourage these kinds of behaviors and i was preaching to them on themes very very similar to this and there was an older gentleman great guy loved jesus walked up to me and he said pastor i'm not too sure about this new focus and i said all right well well, what are your concerns he said well first off i don't like it because it would seem to me that ever since we began this whole process our people don't share their faith nearly as often as they used to now let me tell you what was really going on okay they were sharing their faith they just weren't doing it in the same way they'd always done it they weren't doing faith evangelism on a tuesday night and because people weren't showing up with their bibles at 7 30 on a tuesday night he thought they're not sharing the gospel anymore all right and, and sometimes we think that way, well, it's, this is different, or that looks different, or whoa, well, in this area, we're letting indigenous people do it, and we're just kind of backing away, building the stage for them. Or over in this area, it, it's, a, it's a different approach, and there, there's got to be a, a beachhead that's established, even in, like over in this inner city area, for example, or something like that. And we think, well, wait a minute, we must not be sharing the gospel. So let, let me get this out front, just, sort of, just, just so that there's no mistaking my meaning here. Because this is what I said back to this gentleman. I said, I don't think what's happening is what, you're, what you think is happening. But let me tell you, if that's true, then your church hasn't been listening to anything I've said. And they don't have a clue what it means to truly live out Christian hospitality and mission. Our, our, our actions ought to always be Christ-centered. We should never be ashamed of who we are as, as followers of Jesus. We, we can't simply reduce what God has called us to do to these random acts of kindness that are completely disconnected from being able to share with people the greatest story of reconciliation between God and man that's ever been told in all of human history. Like how how badly do you have to hate somebody to keep that from them? Really? And so let's, let's not make that mistake. Uh, there's this um, saint of old, St. Francis of Assisi. Some of you have heard of him, but those of you from Catholic backgrounds. And, and you may have heard him quoted like this, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. Anybody heard something like that? So a little word of advice, don't ever post that on your social media page, you skin in your ignorance as we used to say uh, in my native South Carolina because St. Francis of Assisi never said that. In fact, you know who that was uttered by? No responsible Christian leader ever said anything like that. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And even if St. Francis had said it, it would remain a profoundly stupid thing to say. Because that's not who followers of Jesus are. Eventually, Jesus is presented. King of the cosmos, who demands the allegiance of every man, woman, boy, and girl. That's what we do. But, But here's the trick. That can't just be something we say. That's got to be something we possess. And I don't mean just believing that or praying a prayer or going through a baptismal ritual or doing something like that. I, I mean, you can't live the kind of life we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, and you cannot have the kind of church we're going to be talking about in the next six weeks without a lasting, eternal, gospel-focused, Christ-saturated difference being made in your life and mine. You can't do it. Because you, you can't keep it up. You just can't. The kind of demands that Jesus puts on you are the kind of demands that can only be met if you really belong to him. And if he's really transformed you, we need to find our identity in Jesus. And that's what will lead. Because some of you, maybe in the last couple of weeks, I hope you haven't, but it's possible. Some of you have, have heard my message. the last couple of weeks, oh crap, something else to do. All right, another list of things. I'm not talking about a list of things you need to add to your to-do list. This is not a try harder, do more kind of message. It's rooted in the fact that if you find your identity in Christ, your life will be transformed to the point that this stuff just sort of oozes out of you. How do I know that? I know that because of the testimony of the man in front of us here in Romans chapter 1. Now you see the actual facts of that story in Acts chapter 9. I'm not going to belabor you with that whole story today, but basically Paul in his former life as Saul of Tarsus was someone who was very zealous and committed to his own religion and was to the extent that he would persecute and even kill and jail others who were not part of his religion. And Acts 9 tells us there, Luke records, that, that Paul had received authority, warrants if you will, for the arrest to go into Damascus from Jerusalem. And to take prisoner, people who belong to the way, because that's early days of Christianity. That's what they called believers in Christ, that they are followers of the way, because Jesus said he was the way. And then Acts also tells us that on his way into Syria, we don't know if he got into the border yet or not, a bright light shone, and he was blinded. And he hears a voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you persecute. And it was that encounter. Paul speaks about that encounter in many places in the Bible, but the most powerful is here in Romans 1. And, and what Paul is doing in Romans is, is two things really. Uh, the, the primary purpose of Romans, few people realize this, but you have to get to chapter 15 to see it. It's fundraising letter. He's raising money. He wants to take aid to Christians and other people who are outside the faith in one area and he knows Rome has a couple of nickels that they can rub together and so he's like when I come through I want to collect an offering. You find that in 15. You go well well, then why do I get Why do I have to go through 14 chapters to get there? Because if you're someone who's going to share the gospel, it's pretty important that the church that supports you understands what you believe and what you're going to say and how you're going to conduct your ministry and those kinds of things. And so the result of this fundraising letter is a 16-chapter-long definition of what the gospel is and how it is to be made in terms of application throughout all of life and what you see in these first seven chapters are five ways that that gospel transformed the man's life that writes this letter and how it should transform ours. So if you want to live a different kind of life, if you want to produce a different kind of church, the the kind of people and the, the kind of church that can really make changes in the world, and Lord, how the world needs some light right now, doesn't it? This is this is what you need. It has to be Christ-centered because what that will do, it will do five things in your life, same five things it did for Paul. Number 1, it'll change your life. You see this in the opening line. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Some of you when you read Romans, you just breeze right past that and you forget there's this whole biography packed into all of that. And, and but but what that introductory statement reminds us of is that the gospel is not just another religion it's not just another choice among many other possible paths to god it's a message that will transform you at your core and you see that by just looking at that very first word paul martin lloyd jones a famed reformed preacher died preaching through romans and one of the possibilities for that might be that his first week was just on this word paul He said, I'm going to preach verse by verse through Romans. I'll just be honest with you. A little inside track. Our elders about two years ago discussed whether or not it might be time for us to move verse by verse through Romans. And and their collective wisdom back to me was, we don't think the church is quite ready for that yet. Not because they're not mature, not because they don't, but that's going to take a while, isn't it? And I said, well, the last time I did it, I was like 27, 28 years old and it took me two years. Can you imagine being two years in the same book? Martin Lloyd-Jones was in Romans for seven years, and he didn't finish it. But what I want you to hear is how much is packed into this biography. Just that word Paul. Who are we talking about when we're talking about Paul? We're talking about nothing short of a miracle when we're talking about Paul. It just contrasts his former life with the way he describes himself in this opening verse. He is first of all, or was first of all, a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees get a bad rap in our tradition, in the evangelical tradition, all right? And I was just at a synagogue with some of our Jewish friends yesterday. And I want to say, just in case any of them are looking, we really don't believe that Pharisees were all bad guys, okay? But there were a few of them, like anybody else, that can use religion as a cover for violence, a cover for bigotry. And, and, and there were a few, and they are noted in the New Testament. And they had committed themselves to earn salvation by complete, unfettered, perfect obedience to God's law. And they didn't like Jesus because Jesus actually used this phrase, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They didn't like that. Okay. And so that's the guy. That's the guy. Animosity toward Jesus, animosity toward this um, grace, this message of grace. Now what does he call himself? A servant of Christ Jesus. That's what's packed in here. How about the Hebrew of Hebrews? That's what he calls himself in Philippians. What does that mean? I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. It means my whole identity was wrapped up in my ethnicity. All right? that, that, That my particular ethnicity earned me some kind of special favor. What is he now? Called to be an apostle. What's an apostle? Someone sent out. Who are they sent to? Everybody. The world. I came to save the world the persecutor of the church first century equivalent of an isis terrorist hunted down jail killed people who don't agree with him this is a bad guy okay and again this is not trying to do a one-to-one correlation with with any particular religion people who have represented our own faith have persecuted people have taken away their rights. People use every sort of religion as a shield for this kind of bad behavior. You're like, well, how do I know if it's the real thing? How do I know if it's real faith or just bad religion? Well, there's a lot of ways that you can differentiate between the two, but one of them might be to just take note of the people that are killing other people. All right. If somebody else is killing people merely because those people don't agree with them, that's a bad guy. Can we just agree with that? You don't kill people for disagreeing with you. If somebody's killing somebody else because there's a disagreement, they're the bad guys. Okay? And when you read these words, you go, man, this guy is now set apart to do what? To preach the very message that he once sought to eliminate the face of the earth. You read these words, you're reading the words of a changed man. One of the reasons Romans is so powerful is not because of its high-level theology, although it certainly contains that. It's comprehensive understanding of how the gospel relates to all of life, whether it's marriage or children or government or whatever it is, although it certainly contains all of that. Its power is in the fact that it's written by a transformed man who is different than he used to be, markedly different. You know, we've been talking about this, we, living questionably have people question you. Why why are you the way you are? Why do you live this way? What do you believe? You, You can't do that on your own. You've got to be transformed to do that. That's why I keep saying over and over and over again, don't receive what I'm preaching these coming weeks. Or, what I've preached the last two weeks as a do more kind of All right, you got to add some more stuff to your life. Come on, guys, we got to buck up. It's time to go. It's not about that because even if you could do that, you could only do it for a limited period of time. You can't carry that kind of weight. You cannot carry the kind of weight that Jesus demands you and I carry unless we let Him carry it for us. That's the point. You, can't, you can only fake that kind of life for so long if it's truly not Christ-centered. You can't produce this life in your own strength. There's no way for you to get happy enough, inspired enough, emotional enough to keep that up in perpetuity. But the gospel of Jesus isn't about any of that stuff anyway. What it produces, first and foremost, the kind of change we see in these opening words, it is a fundamental tectonic shift in your very being. It's an overhaul in your very identity that resets everything and focuses it on the person and the work of Jesus. If you've really encountered Jesus, you are a truly changed person. You're a changed person. The corollary is if there's no change, there's probably no grace. A truly Christ-centered life truly Christ-centered walk, it it reveals a completely changed life. So that's the first thing gospel does for us that empowers us to live the kind of life we've been talking about. It changes our lives. And in doing that, it does something else. It moves our assurances. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. Because this message is based on a fulfilled promise. When most people hear the word gospel, and we were to ask you, for example, what do you where do you think you go to in the Bible to find the gospel? Where would most people go? Do you think? John three sixteen. Yeah, for God so love, and that is the gospel. That is absolutely God so loved the world, loved the world in such a way. Actually, that is a man. The Greek is so much better than the English. Loved the world in such a way that He sent His one and only unique Son, that the believing ones will not perish but have everlasting life. I love that, but that's not where it started. In fact, it didn't even start with the incarnation of Jesus in his public earthly ministry. What Paul is reminding us of here is the gospel came beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures. Well, he's still writing the New Testament version of this, so he must be talking about the old, right? This is where it starts. Genesis 3, 15. We've got a book that our elders gave me some time to write about five years ago. We give free copies of it away, and it, it, this is what it, the the whole of that storyline of Scripture starts right there. Adam and Eve have sinned; they stand naked, ashamed, covered in the guilt that they created for themselves in the garden, and God looks at the woman. And he condemns, he looks at the man, and he condemns, but then he goes to the serpent and then he says this, I will initiate warfare, that's what it means in the Hebrew, between you and the woman, your seed and her seed, and the ultimate result of this is your head will be baby powder. I'm going to end this, I'm going to end the evil. What he's saying to Adam and Eve in that moment is the gospel, theologians call that the proto-evangelion, the first gospel right. I mean the, the, whatever fruit that was that they ate it's not even rotted on the ground yet and God's already promised I'm going to fix this you can't fix it I'm going to fix this for you I'm going to send someone to fix this and Paul says to us here in Romans 1 that promise has been kept is that hard to believe sometimes when you look at the world it's, it's is that, man could it really be true could it really be true? Because we don't live in this kind of world. Even honesty between each other, saying what you mean and meaning what you say, integrity, doing what you say you're going to do, man, those are rare and precious commodities, aren't there? Some of you remember when a handshake was really all you needed and you knew that people on both sides of that uh, that handshake would do what they said they were going to do. And By the way, for a follower of Jesus, that still should be all that's needed. I'm not telling you to be foolish and not have a legal contract. I'm just saying if you shake somebody's hand, you do what you say you're going to do. That really shouldn't be hard. So why do we live in a world with legal contracts and indemnification limits of liability documents? It's because people don't trust each other, and we have good reason not to trust each other. So when a message like this of an eternal God who keeps his promises comes along, We are understandably sometimes a little skeptical, but Paul's message is clear and undeniable. Man, God made a promise to humanity in that garden. He has kept that promise in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We just have yet to see the fulfillment of it, but we wait for it. We wait for it, and it should give us absolute confidence that we can do what he's asked us to do. It changes our lives, it moves our assurances, but it does a third thing as well because it doesn't, it doesn't do much good to move your assurance if there's nobody to actually put that assurance in. So it, it centers our focus. Verse 3, where's our assurances now? Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the essence of a Christ-centered life. Your whole identity is wrapped up, not in your ethnicity, not in your career, not in your marital status, not in your children, not in your parents, not in your past life, in Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? Paul unpacks that for us well. He is the son of David. Well, that's a recognition of his messianic title because David had been promised in 2 Samuel, there will always be somebody from your line occupying the throne of israel and all these thousands of years later that person sitting on that throne an eternal throne now in heaven is king jesus he's the son of david he's secondly the son of god recognition of his divinity jesus is perfect man perfect god well how do we know that for sure because he was declared with power how by the resurrection from the dead this is what we know all right Every religion has something that it stands or falls with. Christianity stands or falls with the physical, bodily, historic, literal, resurrected body of the Lord Jesus. And Paul said, It happened. I saw him. And then I couldn't see anything else. It was so powerful. This is what we believe. All right? A dead man rose. One very famous scientist gave this testimony. He's like, in searching for a religion, I just asked myself two questions. Is there anybody out there who has conquered death? And secondly, have they provided a way for me to do it? And with that, he said, I went on a pilgrimage to all the great sites and all the major religions in the world. And he said, I I went to all these grave sites. And what was interesting is he said, I listen, these people... These founders of these great religions, they said some actually really wise things. They said some good things. They've actually brought some good to humanity. But when I went to their tombs, I found them all occupied. And then when I came to the tomb of Jesus, I found it empty. And then I read the New Testament where he said, because I live, you will live also. So my search is over. It's over. This is what we believe. Listen, is there anything greater than that around which you can find your identity? Your best life now, whatever the heck that's supposed to mean? Listen, and listen, if you're if you're if you're having your best life right now, God bless you. I don't envy you for that. May the Lord continue to pour out his blessing. That's wonderful. But sometimes it comes to an end, and eventually even if it doesn't come to end, even if you're somebody who everything they touch turns to gold their whole life, eventually your life will end. You are going to die. And then what? Of your best life, your purpose, all these things that you want. Where's your center at? Is it your career? Because eventually somebody's going to come along better than you, younger than you, who works for less money there's a reason we retire somewhere between our 60s and our 70s, all right? It can't be. I'm not saying you're no good anymore. I'm not saying that at all. Don't hear that. I'm just saying you can't have your identity in that. Money? Is your identity really? Even if you keep it until you die, guess how much of it you take with you? Yeah. Is it substances? illicit substances that you're you're leaning into right now because that's that's where you go to calm down that's where you go to get to sleep that's where you is it sex is it family all right some of this really good stuff it's not bad stuff at all but my goodness how much can you be let down by all of those things all those things find their proper place when you put your focus on the living king of the universe who provides not only an abundant life here but an eternal life after this one people who live with that man at the center of their life will live questionably they will live hospitably they will do things that make sometimes even make people question their sanity well because my faith is the greatest story of all i believe a dead man rose what other kind of crazy stuff am i going to believe What other kind of crazy stuff am I going to do? It changes our lives. It moves our assurance. It centers our focus. Here's the fourth thing it does. It intensifies our gratitude. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, and those two together, he says, bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So grace is unmerited favor. It's something I get from God that I do not deserve and that I cannot earn. All right, it has to be given, which always troubled me that when I go to a restaurant, and listen, if you go to a restaurant this afternoon, you should tip well and you should tip generously. Okay, That waitress, bless her heart, she can't feed, she can't feed her children on a chick evangelistic track. Stop that nonsense. Leave a real tip. Okay, However, have you noticed what they call the tip? Gratuity. Well, I'm giving you something that I actually think you've earned. So it troubles me. I always want—I almost want to just mark through the gratuity part and just put for hard work, right? This well-earned additional income. Because gratuity, by definition, means you didn't really do anything to earn this. So I have no idea why we call it gratuity, but that's just me. I get that stuck in my head. that That's my problem, not yours. Pray for me. Okay? Gratitude, that's what results from grace. Okay, Guilt is something else. Guilt is something else. And, and oftentimes our service to the Lord is motivated by guilt. And you know how long that's going to last? Right. That, that's, you, you can't do that. Guilt is kind of like a fossil fuel. You can run on it for a while, but eventually you're gonna run out, okay? And I think, wait, listen, I, we, we can't be going solar and wind and all that crap next week, I, I get that. But I also understand, as most people would, if I keep going to my refrigerator in the kitchen and pulling food out and consuming it and I never put anything back in there, that eventually the refrigerator will be, yeah, that's fossil fuels, right? Eventually, eventually, yeah, we, we don't have to worry about it. Our great-grandchildren might. It might be hundreds of years, but at some point, somebody's going to sink a drill in the ground, and it won't be there anymore. All right, Guilt is like that. It might even carry you a really, really long time. It might carry you for years, but eventually you're going to sink a drill in the ground, and it's going to be gone, and you're going to have nothing left. And then you're going to think, well, it must be my church, or it must be these other Christians, or it must be my faith, when actually you don't even understand your own faith because it's not based in guilt anyway. Grace, gratitude, that's like nuclear energy. This stuff keeps going and going and going, okay? Why are you hospitable? Why do you live differently? Why do you live radically? I mean, it's just... Is it because somebody in my line of work laid a guilt trip on you years ago and pushed you to do something spiritually you weren't really ready for? There's a book out. It's called Runaway Radical. It's about a young man that did phenomenal things, but he burned out. We use that phrase a lot, don't we? Burnout. Burnout's real. Burnout is real. 999 times out of 1,000, though, burnout did not come and had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that you didn't get a long enough break. That's not where it comes from. Burnout comes from the effort having originated from the wrong source to begin with. That's where burnout comes from, all right? And, and Paul just told us here that this is by received grace that apostleship happens, Okay. I don't want you changing your life rhythm because you're made to feel guilty in this room. I I want you to invite strangers to your table because of the grace of God residing in you that recognizes that there was a God that invited you, a stranger, an alien, an enemy, in fact. And you now sit at his table as an adopted son, an adopted daughter. That's what I want. I want you to live questionably because you follow a Savior who did things that blew people's minds. I don't want anybody obeying out of fear. I want the obedience of faith that Paul talks about here to overflow from the grace that you have been shown in Christ that transformed you to the core. That kind of faith, powered by that kind of grace, will not burn you out. It is the perpetual nuclear source from which you can continue to live. I'm not saying you don't need to take a vacation. You do. You need life rhythms to do that. Gosh, y'all just sent me away for two months. Ask my staff if I was looking forward to that. Yeah, I was. But you know how I knew it wasn't burnout? About three weeks before it was time to come back, around the time we were coming back from Puerto Rico, around that second week of September, I was starting to look forward to coming back. Because God's doing some stuff here, Amen. Like it's good to read You need that. You need to build those rhythms and all of that. But th- this isn't like if you, if that's what keeps you right. If if that's what helps your rhythm to operate in grace, then absolutely. And you have to do it. And Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so, yeah, you need those rhythms in your life, but they're not there to prevent burnout. Burnout comes when you're operating with a source that's different from the grace of God. Paul just gave us another source. Be grateful to the point that you go, man, there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. Nothing I wouldn't do. So changed life, moved assurances, shifted focus. All that produces an intensified gratitude. And then those all together produce one other other thing. A stillness. Verse 6 including you, who are called to, what's the next phrase, do all this crazy stuff. Nope, nope. The crazy stuff is the natural result of this, called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those who in Rome, I mean, you, you think about Rome. Mark was the first gospel written. It's the shortest. It's the most primitive, there's nothing wrong with it, but primitive in terms of its language and the way that it expresses itself. And and it's very quick and very to the point. And this word euthus, which is immediately, keeps happening over and over and over and over again. And unlike the other three gospels, there's no genealogy. Why is that? Because Mark was writing to Romans. And Roman culture did not care who your mama was. They didn't care. They didn't care who your daddy was. They didn't see inherent worth in any human being. They wanted to know, can you get the job Done. Rome was all about accomplishment. It was all about success. It was all about winning. How radical is a message in the middle of that culture that says, This is what you're called to do? Belong to Jesus Christ and know this Romans, you are loved by God. You are loved by God and you are called to be saints. Our brothers and sisters in other traditions have this view of sainthood that you have to do this, you have to do that, and there's a certain number of miracles, and they got to be verified by this number of people. Actually, the New Testament term just means holy ones. That's all it means, and every single time it is used, it refers not to specific people, some elite class of Christian, it just refers to you and me. Just regular old salt of the earth, people who love Jesus and recognize we are beloved by God. The whole body of Christ, that's who we are. We are the holy ones. We are the saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who are you? Because this is the source from which all this other. Listen, next week, uh, Hebrews 11. It's the most challenging message probably in this whole series we're going to do. Because it says, man, some people stop the mouths of lions, some people put armies to flight." Yeah, and you start remembering some of those old Bible stories, Daniel, uh, the Egyptians at the Red Sea, all that. you're like, man, this is great. And then all of a sudden, like, he didn't take a breath, there's not even a comma. And as he continues, he goes, oh yeah, and some were sawn in two. And some faced this end, and some faced that, like, there's no guaranteed win in this world. The guarantee is you be faithful to Jesus, and he'll give you everything you need in this world while preparing you for the next one. Well, listen, you can't live that kind of life without knowing what we're talking about this morning. Who are you? Well, if you belong to Jesus and you're like Paul, you're several things. You're his property. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's a possessive. I I'm his, so it's going to be okay. You are loved by God, called to be saints. That's your identity. That's your identity. You were chosen in him before you were born. Jesus bled for you before you were born. The Holy Spirit baptized you into Jesus with no input on your part God the Father declared you righteous in his courtroom on the basis of Jesus' own righteousness, and he will persevere you until the end. Imagine the kind of powerful life you can live when you just embrace that. That's true of me. That's true of you if you have chosen to follow Jesus. David Hume was an 18th century philosopher and a skeptic. I I won't bore you to tears with everything he believed, although I I do love talking about this stuff because I'm a nerd, but... He, he devoted his life to something called philosophical empiricism, which means reality is determined by our senses. If I can't see, taste, touch, hear, smell, it doesn't exist. All right, so that then leads to philosophical naturalism. Only the natural world is real, and there's no transcendent reality outside of this one. That then leads ultimately to to skepticism. I don't have any faith in anything without some kind of ultimate proof. This is seeing is believing sort of philosophy of life, and all of that made David human agnostic. So it shocked his academic colleague one evening when he was leaving the office early, And his colleague asked him where he was going, and he said, well, I'm going. There's a revival meeting in town this week, and I'm going to hear George Whitfield, the famed British evangelist. And his colleague was just absolutely shocked. And he's surprised. He looked back at David Hume, and he said, you're going to go hear that madman? I thought you didn't believe that. And David Hume said, I don't. I'm going to hear George Whitfield because he does. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Like is that when you talk about your faith, when you live out your faith, are people looking at you going, Man, you really, man, you, you really believe what you're saying? You really are convinced of the things that you say you're convinced of. Is your life so immersed and so centered on the person and the work of Jesus? like Paul, that they would say, madman, crazy woman. But oh my gosh, I'm fascinated. It is obvious to me by their life and their testimony and their distinctness, what the Bible calls separation. They really believe this stuff. That's what it means to live the Christ-centered life. And if that's not something you've ever taken hold of, Scripture says you can have it today. You just simply understand that your sins have separated you from God and that apart from God doing something on your behalf, you will always be separated from God but the good news of the gospel is that this Jesus who transformed Paul's life came into time and space wrapped himself in human flesh lived in our muck and mire for three plus decades died as a substitute taking the penalty for your sins and mine on himself and then rose bodily from the dead so that you could have eternal life you know what you have to do believe that reach out and believe it and by believe it I don't just mean intellectually I mean the kind of belief that causes you to forsake everything less That's what it means to believe the gospel. That's why repentance and faith come together. I'm leaving this other stuff behind. I'm leaving these identities. I'm not not just going to throw them in the trap. They're not primary for me anymore. They are, as Paul said about his previous identities, they are rubbish. That's a really sanitized English word. I won't tell you what the Greek one means in church. But all that other stuff, that's what it was for me compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You can know him today. We invite you to do that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that all the things we've been talking about are possible only with you. And so Lord I just pray for any uh, a relinquishing of any kind of unnecessary guilt that people may have had placed on them over years and maybe even decades. You got to do more. You got to serve more. You got to serve Father, give us the nuclear power source that is your crucified, resurrected son. And may we walk in that power in the same way that your servant Paul did. Lord, if there are people here who've never done that before, may they give their lives over to Jesus today. Lord, may it give us reason to have to fill this baptistry. Um, Lord, may may it give them reason to have a different kind of life. But whatever you're calling your people to today, may your Holy Spirit move right now and make them faithful in their response. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.